in order to get a running start into one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, Daniel and the Lion's Den. The last two verses of chapter 5 set the stage for Daniel 6. We're told that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And one night, the Babylonian Empire gave way to the Medes and the Persians. As God foretold back in Daniel 2, the head of gold was taken by another kingdom, typified by the chest and arms of silver. While history is clear, the king of this new Medo-Persian Empire was a man named Cyrus the Great. The identity of Darius, a character that we find here, is a bit more complicated. While Darius is referred to in Scripture as the king of Babylon, this can be misleading. Uh, Though the city was preserved during the siege, Babylon was not initially the central capital of this new empire. For some geographical context, the Babylonian Empire comprised of of mostly the known world working west from Iraq. Ironically, Persia conquered the Chaldeans rising from their east in what is present-day Iran. When Babylon fell, the Persian Empire literally doubled in size. So in order to consolidate power, Cyrus the Great ruled the world from Persia and the east, while this man Darius was charged with overseeing the remnants of the Babylonian territories in the west. The second detail you should consider is that while there is a historical figure, a man by the name of Darius I and a Darius II, who would follow Cyrus years later, the man in reference here in Daniel 5 and then 6, he's not the same man. In fact, the timeline doesn't even come close to fitting. There's no record, mind you, of a Darius actually ruling at this time in Babylon in the historical chronicles. And yet, while you might think that that's alarming, it's really not as big an issue as you might think. According to two different secular historians, the Greek historian Herodias and the Jewish historian Josephus, Darius might not have actually been a man at all but instead a title given to the man Cyrus placed over Babylon. The Aramaic word, Darius, it simply means holder of the scepter. Historically, we know the main general for King Cyrus was a Mede named Guberu. Writing to this point, David Guzik observes that ancient documents reveal that following the capture of Babylon, Cyrus granted Guberu, the power to make appointments, assemble an army, levy taxes, and possess palaces, making him, in a very real sense, the king over Babylon. In fact, further evidence is that ancient records record that Guberu was born in the year 601 BC, making him 62 years old in 539, the year Babylon fell. Remember what we're told at the end of chapter 5? That Darius the Mede was 62. It would appear that this man, Guberu, held the title Darius. With all that out of the way, let's dive headfirst into a really amazing story. 
Verse 1, Daniel 6, pleased Darius Guberu to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. One of the notable differences between the Babylonians and Persians was the power structure central to their governance. While Babylon ruled through iron will, the iron will of an absolute monarch, because this new empire, in contrast to Babylon, was founded on an alliance between two people groups, the Medes and the Persians, they governed collectively through agreed-upon, accepted law. Let me give you one example of, of the contrast. We know that Nebuchadnezzar's power was consummate, total. Nebuchadnezzar would make decrees for the masses that he could personally defy or just change on a whim. But in contrast, as we're about to see this morning, Persian kings were bound by the edicts they issued just like everyone else. Now, regarding the restructuring of the vast Babylonian territories, now under Medo-Persian control, we read how Darius set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Uh, think of these men as 120 district courts set over specific regions charged with the day-to-day -day operations and business. These 120 men would then be accountable to three governors who would report matters directly to the king. In a twist, we're told that Darius specifically selects Daniel to be one of the three. Now, because Daniel had served in various Babylonian administrations, was well-versed in Chaldean law and language, was chief over the wise men, it's likely Darius and Daniel, Guburu, and Daniel already knew each other, were well acquainted throughout just years of geopolitical exchanges. As such, Darius knew Daniel. He knew him to be a fair man, a man of high character. We'll get the impression in our story that Guru, Darius, and Daniel were friends. And aside from this relational familiarity, in order to aid in this peaceful transition of power, as well as maintain you know, a level of, of governmental uh, continuity. Since Daniel was a Hebrew, not a Babylonian, not a Chaldean, he ends up being the perfect choice to be one of Darius's seniormost administrators, one of these governors. Verse 3, Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault, because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel, unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Daniel... <coughs> is roughly 85 years old. He's been off the scene enjoying his retirement years when he's unexpectedly summoned by the queen of Babylon to give her son Belshazzar bad news. The bad news? Well, we read about this in chapter 5. God had taken away his kingdom and was giving it to the Medes and the Persians. As mentioned in one night, 
One empire transitions to another, and Daniel, again, finds himself being thrust into the limelight in service of the king. As one of just three men serving directly under King Darius, it doesn't take long for Daniel to distinguish himself above the other two governors and and the rest of these satraps. In fact, his periodic performance review by H.R., was so stellar, rumors were circulating around the palace that Darius was actually thinking about setting Daniel over the whole realm. (laughs) And what can be described as an act of of self-preservation, laced with a measure of jealousy, these other governors and, and a collection of satraps, their power has been threatened. So they set out to dig up something they might be able to use against Daniel. Sadly for them, all of their oppo research failed to find any flaw in Daniel's impeccable character. Now, before we unpack this story in full, I want to take a few minutes and provide a more complete profile of what we know about Daniel through the first five chapters. For starters, as a teenager, Daniel had to make a very important decision. He had been ripped from his home by Nebuchadnezzar, taken 700 miles to serve in the king's palace. His captors castrated him, stripped him of his Hebrew identity, gave him a new name, taught him new laws, forced him to learn a new language and adopt a foreign culture. Though he would serve in the courts of men. In this important, and what can only be described as consequential moment in his life that would set the trajectory forever Daniel had to decide which God would he worship. Would he adopt the gods that govern Babylon, which would have been the easier path, or would he choose the narrow road and remain loyal to the gods of his fathers? Right from the jump, we read in in chapter 1 that Daniel, faced with this decision, purposed in his heart, that he would not eat the king's delicacies. Daniel wisely, as a teenager, drew a moral line in the sand. He set a boundary concerning his relationship with Babylon. Daniel determined that, yes, he would serve faithfully as long as his service didn't require him to violate his conscience before his God. By the time we get to chapter 6, Daniel, he's an old man. His memories of home have faded. He's been serving the realm for 70 years. The empire that took him captive has fallen. He now finds himself serving, living, under the authority of an entirely new set of masters. And yet never once has this man Daniel wavered from the decision he made in his youth. Second trait that we find in reference to Daniel is that on two occasions, people have said of him, up until this point, that he possessed an excellent spirit. Furthermore, five times, this excellent spirit was attributed to the fact that he was indwelt with the spirit of the Holy God. Like What's incredible is Daniel is one of just a few Old Testament characters described using language largely reserved for New Testament believers those filled with the Spirit. Amazingly, 
the pagan people who interacted with Daniel, from his youth up through his old age, found his spirit to be so pleasant that they attributed his demeanor to the divine. People had a brush with the living God when they encountered Daniel. And why? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, never forget fruit manifests on a branch because of the nourishment provided by the roots. The branch really has nothing to do with the process. Now, for the reasons I just mentioned, it was obvious to everyone who encountered Daniel that his life was filled with the Spirit of God. And why did they know this? Why did they sense this? Well, because of the way Daniel lived. What was exuding from his life gave evidence of what was inside. Daniel was different than everyone else. At the end of chapter 1, we're told that none were found like Daniel in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined. He found him ten times better than all who were in his realm. And Daniel 5, the queen affirms of Daniel that in him was found light, understanding, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods and excellent spirit knowledge so that he could interpret dreams, solve riddles, and explain enigmas. In the verses we just read, we're told that Daniel, oh, it doesn't take long, for him to distinguish himself from all the other governors and all the other officials working under King Darius. The word distinguished in the Aramaic, it's an interesting word. It means to show out. Daniel's excellent spirit, it wasn't something he had to manufacture or conjure up. Instead, as a manifestation of his relationship with God, a relationship that filled him with the supernatural presence of God, these things just oozed out of his being in the way he lived. And the words he said. People sensed they encountered God because they had encountered the Spirit of God. The light of God in his heart was not hidden or veiled from view, but on display for all to see. Christian, remember, it's impossible to be a witness of an experience you've never had. You can't shine a light you don't possess, and you'll never have the fruit of the Spirit without the spirit of the fruit. Fourth characteristic associated with Daniel, and it's reaffirmed in our text, he, he was a faithful servant. Yes, he was placed in terrible conditions. The deck was stacked against him, but he was faithful. And he possessed in his service high integrity and moral fortitude. And one of the other unique things about Daniel is he's one of only a handful of men in the Bible in which nothing bad is ever recorded. In fact, the parallels between Daniel and another one of these men, Joseph, are noteworthy. Like Joseph, Daniel was taken captive from his home as a young man. Like Joseph, Daniel would spend the rest of his days living in foreign lands. Like Joseph, Daniel was given a new name commemorating a pagan deity. Like Joseph, Daniel adopted a worldly tongue and dress. Like Joseph, Daniel purposed in his heart to remain faithful to God. Like Joseph, while life had dealt him a difficult hand, Daniel made the most of it. 
Like Joseph, Daniel refused to compromise his morals in the face of a severe temptation. Like Joseph, Daniel was known as a man who was filled with the Spirit of God. Like Joseph, Daniel was used by God to interpret dreams and speak his truth to power. Like Joseph, Daniel would serve faithfully, gaining the king's admiration and trust. Like Joseph, Daniel would be promoted to profound positions of influence. Like Joseph, Daniel's character served to be a witness of the true and living God of Israel. Daniel's integrity was so unassailable that his enemies, clearly motivated to find any type of dirt, were told they could find no charge, no error, no fault in him. Again, Daniel's commitment and his devotion to God was so well known. The conclusion of these conspirators was they wouldn't find any charge against him unless they found it concerning the law of his God. Verse 6, so these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom." The administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. This word petition, it means to pray. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Once signed, the decree would be binding for all. Therefore, King Darius, we're told, signed the written decree. And their plan to take down Daniel. These men want Darius to issue an official decree that for a period of 30 days, anyone who prayed to any god or man except the king was to be cast into the den of lions. <laughs> Aside from the obvious flattery, since it was so early in Darius' reign in Babylon, the logic was for this to be a test of loyalty to the Medo-Persian Empire. Anyone who disobeyed would be given the swift execution of being fed to the lions. Now, while King Darius signs off on the proposal, making it a decree, a law no one could alter, it's worth pointing out that he does so under the false pretense that, quote, all the governors were on board. Clearly, this is a lie, as Daniel was completely cut out of the chain of command. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed, and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Uh, let me make a few observations about Daniel's decision to engage in what we'd call civil disobedience. Verse 10 opens, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed. Right here in the beginning, it's important to point out that Daniel, he wasn't ignorant like, he was aware of what was going on, that this was a trap crafted by his enemies to do him in. He knows the law. 
He knows what's been decreed. Daniel was aware that if he prayed to God during this 30-day period and was caught, the law of the Medes and Persians required he be cast into the lion's den. Daniel knew the consequences for disobeying the command were severe. He also knew the motivation for the decree had been self-serving and that his enemies were likely watching his every movement. To compound matters, Daniel was mindful of the the reality his friendship with Darius, because of the way Medo-Persian law was structured, wouldn't give him immunity. What's really amazing is that Daniel acts without possessing any knowledge as to how his story would end. Like Daniel has never read the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And yet, knowing the stakes... And what was likely to result? Daniel goes home, proceeds to his upper room, and with windows open towards Jerusalem, kneels down, prays, and gives thanks to his God. Daniel doesn't just do this once, but he proceeds to do this on three separate occasions. The very day the edict had been issued, and he does this because it had been his custom since early days. Let me begin by explaining why Daniel would engage in direct civil disobedience. What's interesting about the decree is the obvious workaround. Look again at verse 7. I think this is really fascinating. We read, all of the governors consulted together to establish a royal statute that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except the king, was to be cast into the den of lions. Now notice, the law doesn't require Daniel to pray to Darius. It forbid him from praying to his God for 30 days. The twist on this familiar passage, it's interesting to me. Like Pastors will say that Christians have been called to obey the laws of man until our obedience causes us to defy the laws of God. And while that's completely true, this story is presenting for us an entirely different dynamic. When the laws of man forbid us from living out our Christian faith, civil disobedience is also warranted. That's the grand lesson. You see, the decree of Darius... It didn't require Daniel do anything specific. He could have kept his mouth shut, stayed home, waited out the 30 days, and been fine. But instead, in telling Daniel he could not pray to his God, the state was forbidding him from doing something central to his faith and relationship with Jesus. In light of such a an outrageous decree. You know, something like telling people they can't go to church. Daniel has no choice but to rebel. His relationship with God, no man would stand or or, or dictate that. Secondly, I want you to notice how Daniel engaged in civil disobedience. It, It would appear since early days, the early days of his Babylonian captivity, It had been Daniel's custom three times a day to enter this upper room 
and his home that had windows, he could open towards Jerusalem. And then with a view of the horizon, Daniel would get on his knees and pray, give thanks to the Lord. This is so important. A good indicator that something is foundational to your relationship with God, something to fight for, is when it's a central component to your daily life. Three times each and every day since his youth, Daniel would take a few minutes to pray and worship God in his home. He had a specific place, a particular posture, an intentional direction. Knowing the lion's den awaited, Daniel refused to allow the state to have any say in how he lived out his faith. And yet, while Daniel chose to defy the order, his attitude remained humble and godly. Notice, Daniel doesn't rally a protest to take to the streets in defiance of governmental overreach. He doesn't go to the public square to stage a pray-in, hoping to become a martyr. Like, there's zero pride or arrogance in Daniel's defiance, nor is there any compromise. Like, Daniel is aware that open windows would enable prying eyes, but he refuses to change his routine in any way. Yes, he disobeys the king's decree, but he does absolutely nothing. He wasn't already doing nothing out of the ordinary. Verse 11, then these men assembled and they found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and they spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, the thing is true, according to the law, the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and they said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives of Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petitions three times a day. Verse 14, And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. And his heart was set on delivering Daniel. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So Darius gave the command. And they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke to Daniel, Your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. It, It doesn't take long for Darius to realize he's been hoodwinked. These men had set him up because they wanted to take down Daniel. They played on his ego. They got him to issue a decree that now had placed the life of a close friend into jeopardy. The text tells us that Darius, realizing what's happened, he set his heart on finding a way to deliver Daniel. I mean, all day, Darius and his team of of, of lawyers, they labored looking for a loophole in the statute. Sadly, all his efforts were for naught. Pertaining to the statute, Daniel was guilty. 
Once the sun finally set, Darius is forced to give the command in accordance with the law, the law he signed. They bring out Daniel, leading him to the edge of the pit. And then they cast him into the den of lions. Now, the first miracle of our story is that Daniel's old bones were able to endure the 15 to 20 foot fall onto the dirt floor. Then as a stone is being laid on the mouth of the den in order to make an escape or a rescue impossible, Darius calls out to his friend and he makes the most astonishing statement. He says, Daniel, your God, whom you serve, continue, he will deliver you. Again, what a profound life, legacy, and testimony. Daniel. That Darius would say such a thing. What a witness. It's also worth pointing out that at no point in this process does Daniel mount a defense. In fact, he doesn't say a single word. Verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no musicians were brought before the king. Also his sleep went from him. Then Darius arose very early the next morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting, lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? I had Darius. You kind of feel for the guy a little. He's been worried sick of his friend, and rightfully so. He's so worried, been out of shape, he can't eat. Like he doesn't want any type of entertainment. Keep the musicians away. He can't sleep a lick. The moment the sun rose over the horizon, the king, he gets up, he rushes out in haste to the den of lions, and he commands for the stone to be rolled away. He cries out, probably with a, a measure of trepidation that his inquiry might be met with silence. Daniel, has God delivered you? Verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Oh, what must, that must have done for Darius. He continues, he says, my, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I've done nothing wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Now, we'll come back to this. Let's kind of wrap things up. Verse 24, And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they don't include that verse in the children's Bible presentation of Daniel in the lion's den. My guess is you weren't in Sunday school with the felt board, and that was part of the narrative. Now, knowing that he had been lied to, knowing clearly he'd been manipulated, Darius takes drastic and bold measures, brutal measures. The men 
who have accused Daniel, along with their families, their children and their wives, they're all cast into the lion's den. Lions, who, by the way, happen to be very hungry on account they missed dinner. Well, we read such an account, and if you're like me, you, you have kind of an, an uneasy feeling about it. Understand, in ancient cultures, it wasn't abnormal for the entire family of a man being executed to share a similar fate. Like, not only would this extreme measure serve as a deterrent for anyone else contemplating doing something dumb, but killing the man's wives and his children would lessen any chance of, of retribution or vengeance at a latter date. I do need, before we move on, to make one important observation about this. And it's mainly for the men. Fellas, the decisions you make will carry with them profound effects on your wife and children. For the good or for the bad. The stats are clear that if a man gives his life to Jesus and makes attending church a priority, his entire family typically follows suit. Sadly, though, the inverse of this reality is equally true. You know, it's so heartbreaking when an innocent wife and her innocent children find themselves being thrown into a lion's den simply because a husband acted foolishly and without any consideration of how his decisions might negatively affect his family. Something to think about. Verse 25, wrap it up. Then King Darius wrote, so he makes this decree, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he, speaking of Daniel's God, is the living God. He's alive and steadfast forever. His actions are sure. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. This God, Daniel's God, delivers and rescues. He cares about his people. And he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. This God delivered Daniel from the power of the lion. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Before we close out this story, let's get back to the miracle. And I want to do so by looking at two important statements. In verse 22, Daniel, he tells Darius that his life had been spared because God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths. It's entirely possible this was an actual angel sent by God into this lion's den to protect Daniel from being devoured by supernaturally muzzling the mouths of hungry lions. That said, I kind of have a different theory altogether. A pride of lions typically exists with a large group of females cubs, a couple of younger males, but an, but an older dominant, the leader of the pack. Think the Lion King. In a pride, you'll also find, in addition to a, a, a clear leader, 
distinct hierarchy of authority. Like everyone in a pride is given a different role set by the strongest male. What if? The reason these lions didn't eat Daniel came down to the presence of maybe a much greater lion who wouldn't let them. To this point in Revelation 5, verse 5, Jesus is given an interesting name of particular relevance to the story. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Could it be? The lions in this den stay down because Jesus the Lion showed up? I think so. The second statement of note is found at the end of verse 23. We read, So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because, note, he believed in his God. Now, so much of the commentary concerning this story focuses on God's supernatural deliverance of Daniel from these hungry lions. Daniel stood on his convictions, would only bow his knee to King Jesus. <laughs> There's a whole sermon there. Daniel believed in God. And in turn, while cast into this lion's den, the Lord saved him. I even heard one pastor I respect make the observation that your faith can move the power of God. The problem I have with this application of this passage is how hollow it comes across in light of history. You see, while God saved Daniel from the lions, God allowed so many other saints to be consumed by lions during the Roman persecution of the early church. <laughs> Expanding the analogy, it's true. More Christians die in the lion's den than are saved. Like when considering this problem, the passage, there are two overarching ideas that I think provide a lot of clarity as to what this is all about. First, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. <laughs> it's actually a foreshadowing of the experience of Jesus. Yes, it's true. Bear with me. Let me go through it. Like Daniel, Jesus lived in a foreign land that was not his home. Like Daniel, Jesus was a man of impeccable character in whom there was no fault. Like Daniel, Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God. Like Daniel, when people encountered Jesus, they had a brush with the divine. Like Daniel, Jesus received the favor of both God and man. Like Daniel, Jesus distinguished himself as one who spoke with authority. Like Daniel, Jesus had enemies so jealous of his power, they conspired against him. Like Daniel, Jesus was obedient to God in spite of the obvious threat on his life. Like Daniel, knowing his death was imminent, Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father. Like Daniel, never once do the scriptures record any sin committed by Jesus. Like Daniel, Jesus' enemies 
had to resort to lies because of his blamelessness. Like Daniel, Jesus was arrested by his enemies and charged with breaking their laws. Like Daniel, Jesus remained silent in the face of his accusers. Like Daniel, the man who held Jesus' fate was desperate for a way to free him. Like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to death by a man who knew he was innocent. Like Daniel, Jesus had to face his execution alone. Like Daniel, Jesus was surrounded by vicious animals. Psalms 22 verse 12 says he was surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. Like Daniel, in his trial, Jesus was ministered to by angels. Luke 22 verse 43 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like Daniel, Jesus' body was placed in a pit, specifically sealed with a big stone. Like Daniel, Jesus' friends rushed to the tomb early in the morning. Like Daniel, Jesus rose from the pit alive. Like Daniel, God ultimately was glorified by the way Jesus handled his trial. Like Daniel, Jesus ascended to the right hand of power and majesty. See, in light of Daniel in the lion's den, foreshadowing the experience of Jesus, I believe we should change the way we apply this story to you and I. Christians, (laughs) it is highly likely that at some point you will find yourself in a den of lions for no other reason than you took a stand for the Lord. You didn't do anything wrong. In fact, You obeyed God. And while it's true, God might supernaturally deliver you, like he did with Daniel. It's equally true, you might get devoured, like Jesus. And yet, this is the point you need to know. If, like Daniel, you believe in God, meaning that you've placed your faith in God, you've placed your trust in God, trust with your present circumstances as well as your future destiny, there is no question. I guarantee you, in the end, if you believe in God, have faith in God, trust God with your circumstances, while you find yourself in a lion's den, you will get out of the pit alive. It's a promise. Like the lion of the tribe of Judah is ever present in your time of need. But, no, God didn't save Daniel from the lion's den. Salvation manifested in getting Daniel through the lion's den. And getting through might look different. As illustrated by the experiences of Jesus in contrast to Daniel, whether you're delivered like Daniel or you die like Jesus, In either dynamic, your fate is the same. Not only will God help you through, but you will come out of that pit exalted. God will take you from the pit to the king's palace. I believe the New Testament saints took great courage from this story of Daniel in the lion's den in the face of their own persecution. And the reason I think they took great encouragement from it is because they understood the application was not salvation from trials, but God's deliverance through trials. To this point, I just want to close 
by reading you two different passages of Scripture. I think you'll pick up on some of the, the language. In 1 Peter 5, beginning with verse 6, Peter writes to the church, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the grace of God, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy 4, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul is at the end of the road. He's facing a certain execution. He writes to his friend Timothy, he says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. He's speaking of his experiences before uh, Emperor Nero there in Rome. Then he says, Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord delivered me. He will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Daniel and the lion's den. God might not save us from the lion's den, but He's always faithful to get us through. From the pit to the palace, that's your destiny. So Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word.